Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. I say this calls for action, and now, nip it in the bud. Well, what I do is uh, I look a woman up and down, and I say, Hey, how you doing? And I hope you're doing well, everybody. This is Jim McCairns, back with another edition of The Good, The Bad, and The TV on the number one podcast network for professionals. It's the Believe Podcast Network. Look for us and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform. Check us out on Believe.com, where you can also find information on advertising on this or any of Believe's many, many podcasts. Now let's believe in the good, the bad, and the TV. The year is 1980. It's a year framed by the introduction of The Far Side at the beginning of the year and Bloom County at the end. It's a year that sees 12 U.S. medals won at the Lake Placid Olympics, 33 killed at a prison riot in New Mexico, and seven members of Congress caught up in Abscam, all in February alone. And it's a year that sees The Empire Strikes Back, Pac-Man Arcade Game, and The Shining, released over the course of three days in May. A deadly heat wave descends upon the country in the summer of 1980, with 1,700 dead between late June and early September. And a whole other kind of heat wave crops up in Los Angeles, where comedian Richard Pryor accidentally sets himself on fire. He does this while freebasing. In 1980, Rosie Ruiz wins the Boston Marathon and then is stripped of the honor for cheating. A man named Paul Geidel is released from prison in New York after serving the longest ever prison sentence, having been convicted of second-degree murder in 1911. Actress and Playboy playmate Dorothy Stratton is murdered in Los Angeles by estranged husband Paul Snyder, who then kills himself. It's a sordid mess that'll be documented in an equally sordid movie three years from now called Star 80. Meanwhile, Mount St. Helens erupts in Washington, killing 57. CNN is officially launched, thrilling thousands. TV soap Dallas finally reveals who shot JR, compelling millions. And John Lennon is shot and killed in front of his home in New York City, shocking the world. All this, plus President Jimmy Carter restarts a peacetime military draft registration initiative in the wake of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan the previous November. As all the while he tries in vain to free American hostages being held in Iran since the previous November. His efforts pockmarked by the tragic failure of Operation Eagle Claw, the commando mission sent to rescue them, which instead kills eight servicemen in a mid-air helicopter collision. It's one of many Carter administration failures that helps Ronald Reagan get nominated for and then win the office of president in November. Born in 1980, Macaulay Culkin and Chris Pine on the same day. August 26th. In September 1980, 
The venerable Washington Post publishes a heart-tugging and shocking piece called Jimmy's Story about a local eight-year-old heroin addict. Acclaimed and buzzed about in Washington and around the country, it's written by staffer Janet Cook, who wins a Pulitzer Prize for the story, after which it's revealed that the whole thing is fabricated. The Pulitzer is returned. It's a media scandal and then cultural water cooler moment that in 1982 will weave its way into a storyline for an episode of the CBS sitcom WKRP in Cincinnati called Dear Liar. Here, about one of its radio reporters making up a new story. Dear Liar is one of several episodes of the sitcom to address dramatic real-life news, like one that airs in February 1980. It's called In Concert. WKRP in Cincinnati, which airs on CBS from 1978 to 1982, sits atop that small mountain of smart and sly and skillfully executed sitcoms that are underappreciated when they're around and then revered once they're gone and usually gone prematurely. It's another primetime workplace comedy in the vein of Taxi, which begins the same September 1978 month that comes of age in the late 1970s and which rethinks both the sit and the com of sitcoms. The sit shifting from home to office and the calm moving from incident to character. The show revolves around the day-to-day operations of the struggling Cincinnati radio station called WKRP. It's standing in the local broadcast community, indicated by the call letters that on its worst days seem to spell out the word crap. A lifeless, easy listening station, WKRP radio was converted to an all-rock format in the pilot of the show in one last attempt at finding a listening audience. It's a Herculean task, aided, and in some case impeded, along the way, by the usual eclectic supporting cast mix of smarter-than-they-looks and stranger-than-they-seems. Gary Sandy stars as the new program director. Gordon Jump also stars as the beleaguered, beleaguered station manager. If WKR Cincinnati sounds like a traditional sitcom. It challenges convention and tradition from the start. It's actually a progressive and savvy series, taking full advantage of the doors that have opened for and the changes in TV storytelling in the 1970s. Its scripts are smart, its comedy subtle but pointed. In fact, it's often infused with both overt and covert commentary about media and society. And, as TV is doing more of, The show delves into risky material, new to television, at least new to primetime sitcoms. A gay-shaming storyline as early as its third episode, for instance, and a Vietnam desertion story before the end of its first season. Stories about transgenderism and spousal abuse beyond these. Plus, episodes that press radio business hot buttons like payola and censorship and automated formatting. But the most daring episode of WKRP in Cincinnati airs on February 11th, 1980, with the series in its second season. It's not just inspired by real-life deadly tragedy, it's about it. It makes the tragedy part of the sitcom story. On December 3rd, 1979, at Riverfront Coliseum 
in the real-life Cincinnati, Ohio, at an evening concert by The Who, 11 people are killed and 26 others injured in a ticket holder stampede right outside before the show. It's a horrific incident, born of a perfect storm of circumstances. Bone-chilling temperatures, impatient fans, general admission ticketing, poor venue planning, and ultimately, panic that comes from plain old misinformation. Knowing that the best spots on the concert floor go to those who get into the venue first, the general admission ticket holders, waiting outside in the bitter December cold, hear music coming from inside, assume the concert has begun without them, and rush what are at this pre-show hour just two open doors. Eleven people are asphyxiated in the literal crush that follows. The youngest is 15, the oldest just 22. It's the worst rock concert-related disaster in U.S. history. And the sad irony, the show hadn't started at all. What the line of impatient ticket holders hear is just a sound check. The concert this night goes on as scheduled, emergency crews attending to the injured and to the dead right outside. Members of The Who and much of the crowd aren't even aware of the events until after the show, some not even until the next morning. There's an immediate pall cast over the city and the group and the concert industry. And eyes begin to focus on how the open seating plan at Riverfront plays a role, which is where WKRP in Cincinnati picks up the thread. The cast and crew of WKRP sprung into action, writes Kimberly Potts in Yahoo Entertainment in 2014, with an episode that melded the show's trademark workplace humor with a profound reaction to an event that made national headlines. End quote. Now, reports vary as to the actual impetus for the episode. Some accounts suggest that series showrunner Hugh Wilson needs to be convinced to do it. But at a 2014 cast reunion, WKRP co-star Tim Reed says it's Wilson's idea that shortly after the incident, he says to one of the show's writers, you know, we're a radio station in Cincinnati. This happened here. We would have to do something about that. End quote. And they do. In a hurry. Written by Stephen Kempman and directed by Linda Day, the episode begins on the day of the concert, which the station has been promoting with ticket giveaways, and which staffers are eagerly awaiting, since each of them will be attending. But things take a sharp turn at midpoint, writes Mike Vago in avclub.com, when a shell-shocked staff returns from the show. The shift in tone is devastatingly effective as the second half plays to near silence from the studio audience and the usually silly characters turn deadly serious as they discuss the aftermath of the show. End quote. Mostly the station staffers wrestle with guilt, realizing that some of the injured, certainly some of the dead, are at the concert because of the station contest. Program manager Andy Travis, the always calm ringmaster at the office, is the one who has to break the news to the station boss the morning after at work. Like many real-life Cincinnatians, the boss arrives totally unaware of what happens the night before. Good morning. 
Oh, man, do I feel terrific today. Jennifer, you did it again. Coal to mine, right out of my head. Right into mine. Oh, I'm sorry about that, Venus. You know, I got a confession to make. I went to that rock concert last night thinking I was going to hate it, and I ended up having the best time. Mr. Crossan. Not now, Jennifer. I'm on a rock, a roll, or whatever it is. I'm on it. What's everybody got such a long face for? You didn't listen to our station this morning, did you? No. Mr. Carlson, I don't know how to tell you this. Uh, Eleven kids lost their lives last night at that concert. What are you talking about, Travis? Is this is some kind of bad joke? Sir, I wish it were. Well, I was there. I, I didn't see anything. None of us did. It happened before the concert started, Mr. Carlson. There was this large crowd outside the Coliseum. They'd been waiting there for hours and hours. It was very cold. Somebody inside decided to open some doors. There was some reserved seating. Mostly general admission. That's what they call festival seating. Now, that's what they call a stampede. And that's what happened. The Who didn't even know what had come down until after the show. The script is raw with introspection and survivor's guilt, with dialogue that mirrors real-life discussions being had in Cincinnati the day after. It culminates with staffers leaving at the end of their work days to attend a candlelight vigil for the victims at Cincinnati's Fountain Square. It's another real-life nod. This happens in the city, too. Station manager Arthur Carlson speaks for many as he reflects on the news of the day before he joins the vigil. You know, Venus, there's been a lot of talk about uh setting up a commission to look into what happened here. Yeah. That's not going to be just talk. This town's going to do it. Oh, this is a good town, Venus. We're responsible people here. I know. Good night. The in-concert episode of WKRP in Cincinnati ends with an on-screen message for viewers. It reads, On December 3rd, 1979, 11 people died outside Riverfront Coliseum. On December 27th, 1979, the city of Cincinnati passed an ordinance prohibiting festival seating or general admission. End quote. Of course, the episode almost doesn't air at all, certainly not in Cincinnati, on both the network and local levels. There's CBS concern about taste and exploitation. Reportedly, the vice president of Cincinnati's CBS affiliate, WCPO, rejects it outright. Too raw, too soon. But he and other local officials relent when given an advanced copy to preview. That it headlines the new ban on festival seating helps in their decision to air it. Overall, it's stark terrain for the sitcom landscape, making a story about the deaths of 11 real people just 70 days after they die in a bold print, banner headline-making way. From a 2014 essay written by D.W. Dunphy in UltimateClassicRock.com titled, How WKRP Cincinnati Covered the Who's Concert Tragedy. Quote, Neither the details of this horrible incident nor the history of sitcoms itself indicate it 
that it would make good TV comedy fodder. After all, network situation comedies aren't typically known for tacking, tackling controversial current events. There are so-called very special episodes that will hit upon a broad topic, but when it comes to focusing on a difficult moment ripped from the headlines, the format, understandably, often can't handle the balance of comedy and the shock of the real. But WKRP broke from that pattern and addressed the deadly stampede head-on. If the in-concert episode stands for nothing else, it at least has the honor of saying this. 35 years ago, when things got real, right in the backyard of its fictional setting, WKRP in Cincinnati did not flinch. End quote. WKRP had its share of dramatic moments, writes Mike Vago in AV Club, but this was the only time the show stepped away from the comedy completely, and the result is one of the series' strongest episodes. End quote. Shamefully mistreated and mishandled by CBS throughout its run, WKRP in Cincinnati forever dodges ratings, troubles, and lasts just 90 episodes over barely four seasons. It's canceled in 1982. Still, with this episode, it leaves its mark in TV history as that kind of show that often soars where others merely fly. Two postscripts to the in-concert episode of WKRP. One, in the aftermath of Cincinnati officials banning festival seating or general admission tickets, many other cities and venues soon follow. And two, right after the Who tragedy, Providence, Rhode Island Mayor Vincent Cianci cancels a scheduled performance of the band at the city's Civic Center for the same month, despite the fact that the Civic Center there in Providence didn't rely on festival seating at all. In 2012, 33 years later, The Who came to Providence and honored the tickets from that canceled 1979 show. You gotta believe. The light of day now fades and the evening curtain falls over the sky. People are gathering over at Fountain Square with candlelight in remembrance of friends lost in the night. Be there, okay? And now here's a little mellow softness from Brother Bill Evans. Something entitled, Remembering the Rain. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.